vaccines are not perfect. Vaccines can be overwhelmed by huge viral assault, and then not everybody has a perfect response to the vaccine for individual reasons. Welcome to the Rain Insights on COVID-19 podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. Just as hopes were rising this week that more Americans are getting vaccinated, there came news that the rapid increase of COVID variations could affect the goal of achieving herd immunity. That wasn't the only development in the race against COVID-19 this week. In today's episode, RAIN founder David Lawrence speaks with doctors Fred Southwick and Bill Lang about the latest statistics and whether it's safe to begin traveling again. Let's listen. Bill and Fred, thank you once again for taking time. Uh, would like to go over a few points uh, that have arisen this week. Uh, let's maybe start with uh, the international front. Statistics coming out of uh, India, Thailand, and elsewhere are uh, alarming. And maybe you can help explain what's happening and is this reflective of uh, variants of the virus and the implications for international travel, not just for U.S. citizens going abroad, but for citizens coming into the country. Well, just looking at around the world at the statistics, um, India is having a real hard time. They they are responsible um, over the last week. This was data as of Wednesday, I believe, uh, responsible for about 40% of the world's cases. Um, and they have not had a large vaccination program because they were doing so well um, as recently as you know, a month ago that they really had not put a whole lot of effort into building a large vaccination program. They felt that for whatever reason that they had a, uh, they had dodged the bullet to some extent. Uh, but fortunately, India does have a huge pharmaceutical, including vaccine manufacturing capability, by, by far the largest in the world. Um, and they have a reasonably well-developed public health infrastructure. I mean, granted, there are a lot of isolated, very poor areas in India, but they do have a reasonable public health infrastructure. So they're laying the groundwork for a large vaccination push. But I think they're just now learning that they did, they did not dodge a bullet. They just moved the bullet down the road a little bit farther. The rest of the world, the UK, continues moving down on a daily basis. They're moving down to nearly negligible levels of COVID. They still have pretty tight restrictions in place. Um, as of yesterday, they had a rate of four cases per 100,000 per day. And as, we, as we've talked about in the past, when you're getting down to those low single digits, um, that's getting down to near a negligible level. And then Europe, you know, Europe was throughout the, until the end of winter, um, they, Europe was still running high levels and were increasing. They now have a three-week uh, track record of decreasing case rates. That's not universal across, across Europe, but they have three weeks of steadily decreasing rates. Um, and then Asia while we keep hearing um, stories of Asian governments that are locking things down because they're so scared about many waves that they're having, when you look at the actual numbers, they are still typically less than one case per 100,000 per day, except in Thailand, which is having a problem. Um, there's a little bit of a surge in Japan. Their overall number is still very low, but it it's raising significant concerns in Japan with the upcoming Olympics. And there's trying to get a vaccination program started, but they haven't gotten too far yet. 
Bill, that's an excellent summary. Uh, and I, the problem with India, um, I actually have been in close contact with a number of Indian health professionals, and they were really scratching their head why the uh, prevalence was so low for a period of time. And they really were not sure. It, it appeared they thought that the those that were most exposed had developed uh, some form of immunity, and that's why it wasn't spreading. Clearly, that was not correct. And what seemed to happen is people let down their guard, just as they have in the United States. They began uh, participating in large, uh, crowded events. And as a consequence of that, I think there were a number of super spreader events that have really caused this explosion of cases. And they, as Bill said, they they are outstanding when it comes to pharmaceutical industry and production of vaccines, but they had deluded themselves or had a false sense of confidence and didn't ramp up their vaccination uh, quickly enough. And they do have the public health infrastructure. I think that they can get vaccinated quickly once they have the vaccine. So I'm encouraged by that. Another lesson uh, I took away from Germany. Uh, Germany has had some problems with upticks and uh, Angela Merkel has uh, declared that in the future, and I think they're going to pass legislation to this effect, that individual areas of the country cannot establish their own rules as to who uh, should be isolated and who, where, when different businesses can open up. They are going to create a uniform plan that will be mandated throughout the country, and it will be linked to the number of cases per day. In other words, if you have five per 100,000, everything can open up. If you have 100 per 100,000, which parts of Germany have right now, then you cannot have your businesses open and you have to wear masks uh, wherever you are. So it's, it's adjusted depending on the, the number of cases per day in, a, in the specific areas. And I think that's the right way to go. And that's really what the United States and, and all countries should be doing. Those are great insights. Could we also... One of the questions that continues to come up, um, and in large part because of the year plus of lockdown, is, is it safe to travel abroad if I've been vaccinated? And obviously that will depend upon, you know, the country by country restrictions, etc. But do you have any advice for our audience about, you know, whether for business to visit relatives or just, you know, for general recreation. David, I'm still a little bit uncomfortable with just traveling for unnecessary reasons. Um, I think we still want to, this is opinion. This is, I don't have, there's not great data that says this, but while we still have this large amount of virus, the viral load of the world, so to speak, is so large, do we really need to be mixing that around the world? At the same time, I think that, that at an, on an individual level, that most people can be very comfortable if they have been fully vaccinated and they still practice the appropriate mitigation techniques of so wearing a mask um, when they're in in the airports, uh, wearing a mask on the plane, um, 
maintaining social distancing to the greatest extent possible, including at their destination. If people do that, I think on an individual level, they can feel fairly comfortable that they are relatively safe. Um, so if you need, if people need to travel for business reasons, need to travel for family reasons, um, I think that that's, that's reasonable to do. Um, but remember the, and this is probably, this is probably a better thing for Fred to address than me, that vaccines are not perfect and their vaccines can be overwhelmed by huge viral, uh, viral assault. Um, but they, and then not everybody has a perfect response to the vaccine for individual reasons. So given that, those are the reasons why I'd want to be careful about it. But, you know, all of this is about risk management and you're not going to eliminate the risk. But if we're looking at risk management and what are the risk benefits, if people need to travel, then it's generally reasonable to travel. Yeah, I, I agree with Bill. And, uh, the, the, the concern I have, the, one of the major concerns, is potential of vaccine escape mutants. And they are going to develop, develop throughout the, the world. And so one of the dangers is if you're vaccinated and you run across one of these escape mutants, and these, what would happen is the virus would mutate to such an extent that the spike protein's confirmation the viral spike protein confirmation was so extremely changed that the vaccine antibodies and cell-mediated immunity would not recognize effectively that spike protein and therefore would not maintain a good immunity for you. Uh, if that were to happen and then you were to come back to the United States with that escape of mutant, it could be uh, disastrous. And therefore, I, I think when it comes to international travel, as Bill recommended, only true necessity and then to be extremely cautious with regards to continually wearing masks, staying out of any cl uh, closed environments for any length of time and avoiding any kind of crowded situation would be very, very important. But I think you should only travel internationally if you have a, a, a great need for that. And I do think it's reasonable when you're making your decision and doing your, your risk-benefit uh, analysis, looking at the um, the level, the rate of disease in the country you're going to. If you're going to someplace like, say, the U.K., not that the U.K. is is easily open to international travel right now, but the rate in the U.K. at four cases, at three to four cases per 100,000 per day, I mean, that's pretty low. I mean, I would you could feel very safe in that in that setting. But still, do you, if you don't need to be going, let's not let's get through this thing. Let's get the whole world down to negligible levels. And then we can people can think more about traveling. Yeah, I agree with Bill. The one concern I have is when you're on that plane, when you're in their airport, everybody isn't going to be from the UK. And they could be from an area where there's a high incidence of disease and where there may be uh, a escape mutant. Uh, for instance, uh, Brazil has had terrible problems with uh, highly mutated virus and uh, escape mutants so that, uh, and you can't say whether or not they're on a plane or not. So you're at risk in the airports and on the planes as well as once you get out in the environment. Once you're out in the environment, in the UK, you would be safe, but that's not a guarantee in the airport. I, I agree. I agree. And in reality, it's the airport and the boarding and offloading process that is the most dangerous time. Actually, when you're traveling on the plane, 
planes have been demonstrated uh, both theoretically uh, from the way they're constructed and airflow is constructed and, and in practice that they're very safe. Um, you know, very many documented cases of COVID flying on the plane and very, very few episodes of transmission because of the, the number of air exchanges that are on a plane. But you still have to get on and off. And everybody knows that's just a, cr a crush of humanity trying to get on, on and off a plane. And especially in many international locations, that it's not getting on and off a plane is not as well organized even as it is in the United States. It's oftentimes a, you know, a crush at the gate. And you've got to be very careful about that setting. I agree. Bill is on target. And just to amplify the risk management approach and the model, other variables I assume that would be relevant is the airlines are now uh, no longer blocking out the middle seat, uh, so people are cramped, more cramped. Two, um, as you think about you know where you're traveling, you have to think about your own pre-existing conditions. And three, something that you know most international travelers do not think about, particularly when they're not traveling on business, is God forbid if I do get sick, where do I go, and what insurance coverage do I have? And I assume all those things are relevant to the I'll call it the risk equation that people should take into consideration. So, David, you know I've tried I've. I've this is what I've done for most of my career is, is working with people on how do you do international travel safely. And, and you're exactly right. There's really, there's a couple of phases of this. It's what is the, the risk at the destination that you're going to. So you need a, a, you need a trusted source that can give you the risk analysis. And then it's what are the personal protection things that you can do to take care of you, whether it's, it's wearing a mask to protect, protect against COVID or it's using insect precautions to protect against malaria and other insect-borne diseases. But you need a trusted source to tell you what mitigation approaches you need to take at the destination you're going. And then the, the third thing is you know, if if you break through all that and you still get whatever the the risk d infectious disease or other medical problem is, where do you go to get care? So what are your resources on the end? And then there's also the fourth issue of, okay, something bad happens and you need to get back to the United States. A an air evacuation can easily cost over a hundred thousand dollars to get back to your to the especially to the U.S. from some other country. Um, on the other hand travel insurance, um, evacuation insurance, not travel insurance, is typically very inexpensive. So you can do a lot of risk mitigation with that. Uh, but, it, but those are all things that you need to plan ahead of time. So I have, I have always throughout my career been an advocate of having a trusted source of, of travel-related health information so that you can take all the right steps to make sure that you travel safely. That's even more important in this time, but it's always important um, when you're traveling to places that you, you may not know the, the, the risks, mitigations, and get-home needs. Great points. Uh, let me shift to the pressing question that employers, schools, government agencies are uh, focused on, whether or not they can mandate that people coming back to work must be vaccinated. And I'm not looking for a legal analysis here because it is a thicket and it's a, there's a conflict uh, among states as well as between the federal government and some states. 
But just from a practical standpoint, how are you guys uh, thinking about this and what is the best advice? Should I start on that one? That, David, as you said, it's, it, there are some legal issues in there, and it does vary state by state. I mean, at the federal level, the general guidance has been that, yes, you can require um, if you, and even though it's only been authorized, but it'd be better to have a um, health health legal expert talk about that. And as we have seen, there are some businesses that are in fact requiring it. Um, but generally with the organizations that I've been working with, we are uncomfortable with requiring while it is still an authorized, not a approved vaccine. And the the episode that we've just gone through, actually continuing to go through with uh, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and an unforeseen uh, significant complication that has ar- arisen with the cavernous sinus venous thrombosis problems. Um, you know, imagine if you were the employer and you required your you know, 30-year-old female employee to get a Johnson & Johnson vaccine, and lo and behold, she develops the cavernous sinus venous thrombosis. That will be, you know, if that happens, that would be a very uh, difficult legal issue. But I'm not a lawyer, so I'd leave that to the lawyers. Um, but I think what most most of the companies that I'm working with and other organizations that I'm working with are trying to stay away from treating people differently based on their vaccination status and instead looking at vaccination status secondarily in that if everybody is vaccinated in their area, you're going to start to see the uh, case rates drop significantly. And then you base your behaviors you know, opening, closing, what density can you have? Um, eventually, do people need to continue masking or, or whatnot? You base that on the case rate in the area, uh, not on people's individual vaccination status. Uh, but So there are nuances that come up in that because you have travelers. Are you going to change your requirements or requests for people to do business-related travel based on their vaccination status, that's that is a uh, for many businesses that's a non-trivial issue, um, and there are no great answers. I don't have great answers. Um, I generally say you know you leave it up to the employee, but you provide the information. You don't treat them in a disparate manner, but you do provide them the information that they're going to be much safer traveling if they have been vaccinated um, than if they're not. So there are a lot of issues to unpack with um, with this, but the bottom line is I, I think personally and what I recommend to organizations is base it on case rates in the in the local area of the office or in the office and the destination uh, location that they would be going to in making decisions, not based so- solely on vaccination status. Yeah, that's a very practical approach. From an infectious disease standpoint and, and spread of infection, uh, ideally, everyone should be vaccinated. And the problem arises when a certain percent of your employees won't, uh, are, are, are not willing to be vaccinated, then the behaviors within the institution have to continue to be that there's a danger of spread of infection and you can't fully open up the workspace. And I think that has to be made clear. I'm sorry, we cannot have uh, food or drink open uh, in this area because 10% of our employees are not vaccinated. 
If everyone were vaccinated, we could do that. Um, and that's the issue. And so the rights of a small group are dramatically affecting uh, the behavior of a much larger segment of the society. And we, as a, as a country, have fallen away from being concerned about the community and our fellow man and have been more concerned about individual rights. And this is really being amplified during this epidemic. And I, I, I don't have a good answer, but I think that the peer pressure may be important. And another really what I've found, and I've been talking to a number of physicians about this, one of the uh, really important uh, members that can convince somebody to get vaccinated is your primary care physician, the physician that you have a relationship with. And so I think what employees can encourage is for them to uh, visit their primary physician to discuss the pros and cons of vaccination. And when you look at the pros and cons and the risk benefit, it becomes anybody that's objective and has the objective evidence will realize that the, the benefit so outweighs the risk that it's really uh, irrational not to, to uh, become vaccinated. So that, but I think the physicians are one group that I think are trusted and may be able to sway those that are hesitant. David, I wish I had the actual had actual data to back this up, but anecdotally, um, with the organizations that I work with, um, they find when they do when they do surveys or informally, um, they're finding that the employee base is having vaccine turned down comparable to what they're seeing, uh, what we're seeing generically in the U.S., which has been had been running around 25 percent. I'm going to I'll talk about that in a moment. Um, but what they would do was basically have me or other physicians, other healthcare professionals on and do town halls. We're just here are the facts. You know, here are the here are the risks, here are the benefits of vaccination, and then answer people's questions. You know, what are the issues that are bothering them? When they've done that, they've seen their they've anecdotally now, not I don't have the data on it, anecdotally found that their vaccine uh, resistance hesitancy rates in their population has dropped dramatically. You know, from from them the order of one in four to maybe one in ten, um, that's made a huge impact. I think that's something that organizations really need to look at. Don't you, you don't want to get in the position of telling people they have to, but provide people the information and let them make an informed choice rather than going to Dr. Google and getting information that may or may not be real. That does bring me to one other point that I wanted wanted to make that's, that is a little bit worrisome and to me is one of the biggest um, hurdles we have right now in getting to herd immunity. And that's that the, the indirect effect of the AstraZeneca and the um, Johnson & Johnson holds or pauses on vaccination. There is a large number of people out there who hear vaccine, blood clot, brain. They put those three things together and they don't care what vaccine it is, they don't want a vaccine. And that's that has, the statistics are pretty clear on that, that that's pushed the, uh, the vaccine hesitancy rate from this is U.S.-based data, but has pushed it from roughly 25% to as high as almost 40%, on the order of 37 to 39%. Um, that's a huge jump. Now, 
as we start reopening the use of it and providing the information on what really happen, is happening and what really are the risks, hopefully that'll come back. But it's given those people who are on the fence, you know, a push the wrong direction off the fence for right now. And that's a little bit concerning. Yeah, Bill, Bill point, makes a very important point in that individuals focus on negative more than they do positive. And in general, it takes four positive results to overcome one negative. Uh, when you're, if you're trying to critique an employee, that's what's found. And this is the same situation with the vaccine. The good news is Moderna and Pfizer, so far there's no indication for this same form of complication. So it appears it's just those that have used the adenovirus uh, to uh, deliver the spike protein uh, to induce immunity. So that's the good news. The other good news, it's holding up that it's approximately one per million. And the other good news, it's a distinct group. It seems to be predominantly a women ages 18 to 45 or 50. And so uh, those groups, maybe they should avoid the adenovirus and use the mRNA uh, vaccines, Moderna and Pfizer. And that way they can get around this. Uh, so just a little bit of update on the J&J vaccine is we were told originally that the advisory panel was going to be re was going to meet again today um, and possibly release their recommendations today. Um, I don't think there's I think most people expect that the recommendations may say something along, along the lines of what Fred said, that that this this vaccine should be avoided in um, basically women of childbearing age, essentially. Um, the Maybe a little bit higher, maybe pushing that to age 50. That's probably what will happen, but we just don't know. We're not sure the, the um, information is going to be released today because yesterday uh, they found there were two more deaths that were linked to, there are two more um, the clots that actually went into deaths that were linked to the the J and J vaccine. So that may have derailed the uh, release of new recommendations today. Um, but I th I think we still expect the J and J vaccine will be used because there are large groups of people who have not shown any um, higher any elevated risk from from this vaccine, and why not use it in that setting? But that's what the advisory committee is going to look at. I, I think the pause will be lifted as as Bill has emphasized. It's all about risk benefit. And there are groups which will really benefit from a single vaccine. For example, um, uh, college students we're seeing where I'm vaccinating a lot at, at University of Florida. And a lot of the students were going to get the first dose of the Pfizer, but they're going to go home before they can get the second dose. And that's really a logistic problem. So they're going to have to find a place to get Pfizer and their home where they live at home. So that's and then homeless individuals, a single dose would be much better. Rural communities where the supply where you usually uh, Moderna and Pfizer come in very large lots and it makes it very impractical to uh, use those in rural areas and the J&J is uh, stable at, at just refrigerated for prolonged periods. So for rural areas, I think it's also, uh, a, from a logistic standpoint, uh, easier to uh, administer. So I, I'm hoping that J&J &J will 
be re, you know, uh, allowed to continue to be administered because it does have a unique uh, characteristics that really will help us achieve herd immunity. As always, um, Bill and Fred, thank you so much. Stay safe and well. We'll talk to you next week. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Dr. Bill Lang is an expert in public health responses to biological incidents, including pandemics. Dr. Fred Southwick is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Florida College of Medicine. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. You can sign up for our coronavirus solution and get critical information on the COVID-19 pandemic delivered daily. Visit us at RAINNetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E-Network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.